This morning, I want you to be enthralled and amazed uh, at God, at his word, what he's done, and what he's doing. Um, I, I want to draw your attention uh, to the beautiful and the profound orchestration of God's hand. And we'll see it in Scripture. We'll see it in the lives of people in Scripture because I want to translate to your life. That you'll walk out of here this morning, that you'll, you'll leave uh, from this teaching uh, in, uh, in amazement at what God does, what he's capable of doing, so that, so that you will both trust him and obey him at a, at, at a far deeper level. When you see his hand and what he does, it, it's, it's so trustworthy. Everything that God wants to say to you and to me and to the world is clearly and plainly seen in Scripture. The, the, Bible, the Bible works like this. It's shallow enough for a child to wade in and it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And at every level, it says the exact same thing. This, this, is, this is the gospel. This is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whether you're in the shallow end or the deep end, this is, this is what the Bible says. And this is the orchestration of God's hand in the world to reveal this and to provide this. Everything that God wants to say and wants to do is clearly and plainly and simply and easily seen and known. But just to give you a wonderment of the power, the magnitude, the beauty, and the orchestration of my God's hand, I want, to, I, want to, I want to dive into the deep end and see the exact same message. And, and so the, the scriptures uh, today, I am putting on the screen behind me because there's so much that I want to get through. There's so much, and I'm going to go fast. But I want to make sure you get, you get what I'm given, okay? I don't want to preach better than what you're listening, and so I'm going to go fast. But if you're not getting it, I want you to let me know because I'll go back and I'll I'll make sure you get it as much as I can, okay? So I want, I want to start, and I'm going to show you this very thing and how God has orchestrated this through all of Scripture and how he's orchestrating this in your life. John 3.16, easy to understand. I want to jump back 1,400 years before Jesus, and, and talk to you a little bit. I'm going to show you something in, in the genealogy that's recorded for us in Genesis 5. In Genesis 5, it, lasts, it lists, lists the generations from, from father to son, father to son, father to son. From all, all, all the way from Adam to Noah. Because God is telling us something. And so in Genesis 5, it starts with Adam. Now, back in these days, Old Testament, especially even New Testament, Names meant something. It wasn't just nomenclature to know who to send the mail to. It was, it was like when you named a child, 
and, and primarily boys, it was, a, it was a prophecy, it was a statement, it was an indication of who they were, what they would do, and who they would become, what they and who they represented. So names are very, very, very important. And so in this genealogy from Genesis 5, starting with from Adam going down to Noah, Adam's name means man, okay? Adam had a son, and Adam's son's name was Seth. Okay, when I'm talking about Cain and Abel, this is his other son, Seth. And, and it's important that Seth is listed in the genealogy here. You'll learn why in just a minute. Seth's name means appointed. Seth had a son, and his name was Enosh. And Enosh means mortal. He's a mortal man. Okay? Enosh had a son, and his name was Kenan. That boy's name means sorrow. How would you like that name? <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, son, you know, you've really been a disappointment to your mother and I, so we dubbed thee Kenan. <laughs> no, it just, it was sorrow. It's like, but then Kenan had a son, and his name was Mahalalel. Everybody say Mahalalel. Mahalalel. El is the Hebrew name for God, and it means the blessed God. Okay? That, that's Mahalalel's name. Now, after Mahalalel, he had a son, and his name was Jared. And Jared means shall come down. It's another odd name. And Jared had a son, and his name was Enoch. And Enoch's name means teaching. And just as a side note, if you go to the book of Jude in the New Testament, the one right before Revelation, it's one chapter long, you look at verses 14 and 15 in the book of Jude, and Jude talks about Enoch's teaching. Enoch was the first one to prophesy and teach about the second coming of Christ. And so his name is teaching because he was a teacher of prophecy. First record of the second coming of Christ taught by man is from Enoch, and it's recorded for us in Jude in the New Testament. It's amazing. Anyway, Enoch had a son, and his son's name was Methuselah. Now, hold on for a minute now. If you go back in Scripture and just read in Genesis 5, You'll find that Methuselah was 107, uh, he he lived uh, 969 years old, oldest recorded human ever. 900, that's how old he lived. But his son, he was 187 years old when his son Lamech was born. Okay, then the Bible tells us that Lamech was 182 years when his son Noah was born. Okay, so Methuselah is Noah's granddaddy. Okay, 187 when his son Lamech was born. Lamech was 182 when Noah was born. So that means when Noah was born, Methuselah was how old? It was 369 years old when Noah was born. Noah lived 600 years so, uh, before the flood. So Methuselah lived another 600 years after Noah was born. Okay. So Methuselah was 969 years old. That's what the Bible says, how old he was. When what happened? When the flood came. We know that because of how old he was when his son Lamech was born, how old Lamech was when his son Noah was born. And then Noah, we know from Genesis 7 that Noah lived 600 years before the flood waters came. Those three numbers add up to 969, which was as old as Methuselah. Methuselah's name means what? His death shall bring. Methuselah outlived his son Lamech, and at the death of Methuselah came the flood. Because his name means his death shall bring, and it brought the flood. You tracking with me so far? 
So just, just hang with me now. Methuselah's son, Lamech, means the despairing. Lamech's son was Noah, and Noah means rest or comfort. So if you take this genealogy and you put these names together, because they're all listed in Genesis 5, you put these names together, but you read them through their names' meaning, what you get is this. Man's appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the gospel. And the genealogy in Genesis 5. Do you see that? My God is so intricately involved in all the details. He has orchestrated everything to be about his son. And when you know that and you see it, you can trust him and obey him. Because if he is this intricately involved in his word, guess how intricately he is willing to be involved in your life. If he works all these details together for beauty, guess what he is doing and willing to do in your life? And when you understand this, that's a hand I'm willing to trust and obey. Because nothing's by accident. God is always working to draw our attention to Jesus. Always, in every step, in every detail. Now, I want to jump to Genesis 37. Genesis 37 starts the story, it seems, of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 50, all those chapters, from 37, chapter 37 in Genesis all the way through the end of Genesis, is all the story of Joseph's life. Joseph, how many of you... I saw uh, um, the Technicolor Dreamcoat way back in the day. Any of you like the Broadway thing? A couple of you, yeah? How many of you, you know the story? Do you, do you know the story of Joseph? Joseph was the son of Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph at this time of the story was the youngest one, and he was, he was daddy's favorite because let's admit it, we have those. Uh, and, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, so like he loved all his kids, obviously, loved them all, but there was something about Joseph that he, he was an overindulgent father. He was probably one of those dads that never told his kids no. It wasn't just a helicopter, pilot, uh, helicopter parent. He was a bulldozer pe- parent that just mowed down everything in front of him. And, and Joseph, he was just a little spoiled, favored by his daddy, and rightfully so. But his dad gave him this big, long coat, the Bible says of many colors, it really means a big sleeved coat because people of authority wore coats with big sleeves. It was, they, they, they served as honestly as, as their briefcases. They would keep scrolls in there and you know their, their, their iPhone and, and keys and stuff. And, and workers wore sleeves, you know, sleeveless robes so they could work. And so he gave him this ornate big sleeved robe because he was you know, the, the next up and coming. And all his little other older brothers just hated him. He's having all these dreams, how his brothers were going to bow down to him, how his own mom and dad was going to bow down to him. And it was just like, that's the story. 
and, and what that fleshes out in his life. So that's 37 through 50. It seems to be that all about, but, but watch, how, watch how Genesis 37 opens. This, this is strange to me. The Bible says this is the history of Jacob, but the stories are all about Joseph. Why would the Bible say it's the history of Jacob? Well, let me tell you why. Because Jacob is Joseph's daddy. And the Bible says that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through the line of Jacob. It doesn't say it comes through the line of Joseph. And so right from the beginning, I want you to understand that the story of Joseph is not a story of Joseph. It's the story of the Messiah coming through Jacob. That's why it's the history of Jacob and then tells the story of Joseph. Because Joseph understood something that we do not, that our story is not our story. Our story is his story. And he has invited us into his story. And Jacob understood that, that his life was not primarily about him. It was about what God was doing. And as, Jacob, as Joseph goes through all these things that he's going to go through, he responds in such a way that is so otherworldly than how you and I would respond. Because he understood that his life was not primarily about him and his comfort. His story was about God. His life was about God using his life as the story of his son. And so I, Joseph lived about 1,800 years before Jesus was born. This, the Genesis, this portion of Genesis was written about 1,400 years before Jesus was born, but it's all about Jesus. And I'm going to show you how. There, the similarities between Joseph and Jesus are, are uncanny. Genesis 37, Joseph was sent on an errand by his father. His father, Jacob, told Joseph, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. I'm going to send you. What did the father say to Jesus? He sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he what? Yeah, another word is sent. He gave him. He sent him. Both Joseph and Jesus were sent by their fathers. You see that? Watch this. Both Joseph and Jesus were sent to seek their brethren. Jacob says to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers. Jesus was sent. It was a Jewish Messiah sent to God's people. And he made the invitation open to us non-Jews as well. But he was sent. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He was sent by his father. He was sent to his brethren. And though he was sent by the father on an errand for the father, behest of the father, sent to seek and to save his brothers, his brethren, he was rejected by the people who plotted to kill him. Rejected by their own people who plotted to kill him. Joseph is sent to his brothers, and his brothers see him coming, and there's all this bad blood between them. And their brothers, instead of accepting him and receiving him, they reject him and they plot to kill him. And they say, come now, let's kill him and throw him into that cistern and say that a, fierce, a ferocious animal devoured him. 
He was sent on behalf of the Father to seek them for their well-being. They rejected him, and they made plans to kill him. Exactly what happened to Jesus. From then on, Jesus claimed to be divine, claimed to be from God, claimed to be of God, claimed to be God. And from then on to that day, they plotted to take his life. Sent to, by his father, on behalf of his father, sent to his brethren to seek their benefit, their well-being, rejected and made a plan to kill him. Not only that, Joseph, like Jesus, was stripped of their clothes. They got hold of Joseph, and when he came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and his ornate robe that he was wearing, just like they did to Jesus. He was also humiliated that way and stripped of the representation of his authority. The Bible says when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them among the, uh, in, into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. Both Joseph and Jesus were sent by their father to seek out their brethren for their well-being. They were rejected by those to whom they were sent. They made a plot to kill them, and they were stripped of their clothes, stripped of their authority, stripped of their dignity. See, Joseph understood that, that what was going on in his life wasn't just about him. He, he responded to all this with this attitude of, no, 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 I'm not, I know my God. And while it may look like things in my life right now are all trending against me, I know my God. And I'm not backing off and I'm not backing away because I know my God. And I know what's happening in my life is not just about me. It's about the revelation of him to the world, and I'm, I know my God. And both Joseph and Jesus were sold for the price of a slave. Joseph is in this pit. He's stripped. He's, he's, he's basically in a tomb. And the Midianites merchants came by, and his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave. And guess what? Just like Joseph, Jesus also. The religious leaders asked Judas, what are you, what are you, or Judas says to them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And so they count out 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Now I realize the, 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 the amount's different, 20 shekels in Genesis 37 and, and 20 there and 30 here. You, you know why the difference, right? Inflation. Yeah. You know, thanks, Biden. It... <laughs> the Bible speaks. I just interpret. Just kidding. It's the price of a slave. And, and, and I mean, just imagine me. Imagine you in this place. And at this point, you're thinking, God, where are, where are you and what are you doing? You, you take me out of my home. You take the people that are supposed to love me. They turn against me. The people who are supposed to have my back betray me. I'm basically left for dead. You, you allow this stuff to conspire around me to sell me as a I can't. I don't even have authority over my own life anymore. Like, what are you doing? Right? 
That's how I'd respond. That's how you'd respond. Let's be honest. Like, I don't understand what's going. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand this. And this has been going on for a long time. And what? When are you going to st- when are you going to intervene? When are you going to change? When are you going to act? When are you going to make it? But see, that's not Joseph's attitude. Because Joseph understood that his life was not about his story. He knew his God, and he knew his God was a God of orchestration and beauty, and somehow that his life was about telling the story of Christ to the world. And because Joseph understood that he could respond to all of these things in an otherworldly way, far different than you and I. And if you go on and read the rest of this Genesis account, you come to Genesis chapter 40. Or, or sorry, Genesis chapter 39 first. And in Genesis 39, Joseph is sold into Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the... He was in charge of the, of the prison system. Um, and he sold into, into Potiphar's house as a slave. But God's hand is still with Joseph. And Joseph hasn't walked out on God because things are going poorly. And because God's hand is still on him, Joseph ends up running all of Potiphar's estate. Balances his books, takes care of his money, takes care of his affairs. And Potiphar put everything that he owned, very wealthy, very powerful man, under Joseph's care. While Joseph was managing all of that, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him. Uh, And as was the custom of the day, when a powerful, wealthy woman wanted one of her slave boys, she took him. And most Slave boys were more than willing to oblige. That was the custom. You just didn't say no. And so she leverages her authority and all of her privilege against him, propositions him, grabs him, and Joseph's response is, I cannot do this against my God. Rather than saying, God has left me, God has abandoned me, this is just the way stuff goes, fine. In the midst of all this that has gone wrong, he says, I cannot do this to my God. Because he is a beautiful God, and I know his hand is still at work, even though I can't see it. And he takes off his cloak, leaves it in her hand, and runs out. And at that, she's incredibly embarrassed. Because how dare she be rejected? She screams, people come in. She's like, oh, he tried to rape me. And Joseph's like, no, I didn't. But since we don't have security cameras, you know, it's my word against hers. And so Potiphar, she tells Potiphar this made-up story. And the Bible says that Potiphar was angry, irate. But Potiphar wasn't angry and irate at Joseph. He was angry and irate at who his wife was. Because had Potiphar thought Joseph was truly guilty, he would have had him executed. That was the law. But instead, he has Joseph thrown in jail because he knew he was innocent. Just like Jesus. Jesus. 
falsely accused. Potiphar's wife kept Joseph's cloak beside her until his master came home. And she told him the story, that Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make a sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Is that really how it went down? No. Falsely accused. Just like Jesus. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the whole 70 leadership, religious leaders, were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified, what's that word? Falsely against him. But their statements didn't agree. Falsely accused. You ever been accused of something falsely? So was Joseph. So was Jesus. I think they respond a little differently than we do. Joseph understood what's happening in his life was not about him. And so, though both were falsely accused, they offered no defense, and they were convicted, though they were innocent. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. We know why. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He knew he was innocent. He, he, he knew the charges against him were bogus. But Joseph didn't offer a defense. And he allowed himself to be convicted, though he's innocent, just like Jesus. Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. Because he knew God was doing something different. Most of the time when we're offended, when we're hurt, when we're charged with something, we want to defend ourselves, we want to assert our rights, we want to blah, 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 because we think that our life is about us. And God says, sometimes you need to remain silent, just like my son was, because you are not as innocent as my son. Not only that, falsely accused, Offered no defense, convicted though innocent. Just like Jesus, Joseph also was counted with two prisoners. He was thrown in jail. And the only story we have of Joseph and the prisoners is Joseph and two convicts. The three of them. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. You have Joseph and two prisoners. The innocent counted among the guilty. Two of them, just like Jesus. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Innocent, convicted, Count it with the guilty. Do you see this? Do you see this? And then you, you read chapter 40, and in chapter 40, you, you see this God saying, look, I'm doing something. I don't want you to miss my son, and I'm fleshing this out in real time in Joseph's life. Genesis 40 you have Joseph in the prison, 
with two other convicts, the, the cupbearer and the, and the baker. And in that story of the cupbearer and the baker with Joseph, they each have a dream. And they tell Joseph their dreams, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And he, Joseph says to the cupbearer, he says, here's what your dream means. In three days, you're going to be resurrected to life. Three days. King's going to restore you to your position. You're going to be all right. The baker comes in and says, well, I had a dream too. Here's my dream. And he says, in three days, you're going to die. The cupbearer and the baker. One was saved and one was not. Just like the two with Jesus on the cross. One said, surely you are the son of God. Remember when we come into your kingdom, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other one said, you deserve to be killed just like us. You see this? Not only that, but in that, in that jail cell scenario with Joseph and the cupbearer and the baker, I want you to understand that Joseph's freedom came through the baker and the cupbearer, representing the bread and the cup. The bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus. That's why we do communion. God is, is, is so intricately involved in the orchestration of his word to remind us it's about his son. Why would we believe he is any less involved in the orchestration of your life? In the details. So that in our lives we will see it's not about us primarily. Primarily it's about him. So I respond to things, I approach things, I am involved in a different way because it's not about me. And with the hand of a God, of, with that detailed of orchestration, how can I not trust him? How can I not obey him? Everything that God does, so I'm going to do this in your life. I'm going to allow this in your life so that you will be a picture of Christ to the world. Because your life is about my story. And when you do that, when you trust his hand, when you trust his orchestration, not only do you start to trust him more, but you start to obey him more. Because why would you not? Because you know that in all of this, God is working it together Beautifully. This is what Joseph, this is why Joseph could respond like he responded to all this bad stuff with complete trust and obedience, because he knew, as he will state in Genesis 50, 20, when, when his brothers finally, finally come to him. He, he is risen in power in Egypt. He's in charge of the entire land. And this famine sweeps over the whole rest of the known world, except where Joseph is. Famine is hit, but he's been wise. He's stored up. He's just done a beautiful job of management and leadership. So all the world comes to him for food. And Joseph is standing there. His brothers don't know he's alive. And all of a sudden, he reveals to his brothers that he's alive and he's in charge. And God has done this incredible thing to him. And his brothers are like, oh, crap. We were so bad to you. We were so horrible. We considered you dead. And Joseph has this moment where he verbalizes what he knew from the beginning. 
that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Because I know my life is about his story. So I don't have to worry about how the details appear at the moment because I know that God is intending it for good. So I will trust him and I will obey him because his hand of orchestration is profound. Do you understand? Joseph knew what we read in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Because our life is not about our life. Our life is about his story. And so as I move through life, I can view and understand this, the things that happen. As difficult, as painful, as heart-wrenching as they may be. as the opportunity to flesh out the story of Christ in this world. Do you understand? I just want you to celebrate and be amazed at what God has done in this book and what he is doing in this world and in your life. If he has orchestrated the intricacies of it so profoundly here, why would he not there? I just want you to be amazed and enthralled. This is a living thing that God continues to speak. And as his living things trust and obey him, he works all things together somehow. And when I understand that about him, I can trust him and obey him more. And I can look at these things. When people walk out on me, when people betray me, when people leave me who are supposed to be with me, I can say, rather than my offense, God, change me, change it. I can say, you know what? This is my opportunity to identify with Christ. Because how many times have I done that to him? How many people do that to him? I can identify with the sufferings of Christ. So thank you, Lord, that I get to respond to those people who hurt me in a Christ-like manner. Because it gives me an opportunity to reveal you to the world at every level. I sat with an really elderly lady years ago uh, as cancer ate her body from the inside out. Beautiful Christian woman. She never turned away from God. Excruciating pain. But she would ask me off every time I'd visit her, why? And why God doesn't let me go right now? The only thing I could say to her was, I don't know. But I do know that God has given you an opportunity to show me what it is to trust in suffering. Because that's what my Jesus did. And she bore that burden 
waiting for her eternal home. And she counted herself worthy to suffer in faith. And through her life in those last months, spoke the gospel in ways that words could not. She represented Jesus in a profound way. I don't know what it is all of you are going through, but I know that perhaps the reason why God allows us to go through the difficulties, the pains, the sorrows, the loss, it's because he's given us an opportunity to realize our life is not about us, it's about his story. And to live out in real time, in flesh and blood, the message of Christ to the world. You understand? And if God has orchestrated all of this, you have to know that he is just as intimate and just as intricately orchestrating the details of your life if you'll just trust him and obey him. Because it's only by trusting him and obeying him that you get to see the orchestration of it all. That you can stand finally one day and say, though you meant it for evil, God intended it for good. And I know that he now works all things together for the good of those who love him and call to quarter his purpose. I know that. And I'm not dissuaded by circumstance. I'm not dissuaded by life. Here I stand. I can do no others, Martin Luther said. So my invitation to you this morning, jump all in. All in. Reframe how you're thinking about the circumstances of your life. Understand that the God, the, his hand of orchestration, his intricate hand of design, is willing to be at work in your life to work them together for good if you'll trust him and obey him. My invitation for you this morning is to jump all in. Not half-hearted anymore. Not we'll see how it plays out. All in. Because God loves you so much, he sent his son. I want you to pray with me. Father, I thank you that you loved us so much. You sent your son to die for us. That we who believe in you would not perish but have everlasting life. That is an amazing gift that you offered. I thank you that the way to that is through faith, not by performance or obedience but I think that you give us the opportunity to respond to that love in obedience. God, our lives are not about us. You must increase, we must decrease. I want my life to be about your story. We want our lives to be about your story. 
I pray that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart, give us revelation and understanding through your Holy Spirit to submit ourselves to your story. And in submission, we give you permission to allow us to to go through whatever it is that would tell your story more clearly to our huddle and to our world. I pray you, you, you'd not let us get caught up in, in it all being about me, all being about us, all being about what's going on with me. I pray that you would draw us deeper and more fully into it being all about you and your kingdom. That you would change our perspective, change our mind, change our hearts. That it would fully be completely all in about the revelation of you to the world and your kingdom to the world. Friends, I want to invite you in this moment, just with your eyes closed, just to think through are, are you willing to be all in? Maybe for the first time in your entire life, maybe for the hundredth time. It's one of those things when you constantly have to redirect your heart and your attentions and your affections and your passions. Are you willing to be all in? in, where you're willing to say, my life is not primarily about me. It's not about my happiness, not about my comfort, not about what I want. It's about, it's about his story and his kingdom. Are you willing to be all in and tell him, God, however you want to orchestrate your story in my life, have at it. But I'm not backing up. However you want to orchestrate the telling of your story through my life, I give you permission to have it. I'm all in. I'm not going to be half-hearted about this. I'm all in. Because you loved me enough, I am all in. I'm not going to take half steps. I'm not stepping backwards anymore. I'm all in. As best as I know how, I'm throwing in with you. So orchestrate my life however you want to, to tell your story. I'm Just tell them, see, God, it's not about me anymore. I'm all in. Tell your story through my life. I will trust you and I will be obedient because I know that through my trust and obedience, your story is told, I'm all in. because he loves you that much. Father, orchestrate your people's lives in such a way that you tell the story of your son and in the telling of your son through our lives, work all this stuff together for your glory and our blessing. We're all in. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're all in. We're not stepping back. We're not going sideways. We're not going to do this apathetically. We're not going to be lethargic about it. We've done that enough in the past. That's not our story now. We're all in. Still with your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to do something. And I'm not going to ask you to come up here, but I am going to ask you to do something. Oftentimes, the position of our body doesn't rightly reflect the 
attitude of our heart. And oftentimes the attitude of our heart calls us to a different position of our body. This might not be for everybody, but I'm, I'm just telling you, if you're one of those that says, God, today I'm all in. I don't care if it's the first time or the thousandth time. It's today you say, God, I'm all in. Then I want to encourage you so that your body position reflects the attitude of your heart when we start singing, just stand up in affirmation that I'm all in. That God, I'm, you died for me. I'm willing to stand for you. I'm all in. I'm all in. That means I don't, I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm all in. Tell them, God, I, I want the, the, the position of my body to reflect the attitude of my heart. And the attitude of my heart is I am all in. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation. I'm all in. Your hand of orchestration is profound. I trust you. I'm obey you. I'm all in. Because I know how much you love me. God, you are a good God. And your word is so beautiful. And your love is so profound. You got people here who are all in. Your word says your eyes range to and fro about there to find those whose hearts are fully committed to you that you may strongly support them. You're going to find some here. We're all in. We love you because you first loved us. Oh God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You all in? Let's sing.